Hello, this is Stephanie. And this is Brian. Welcome to our podcast, The Making and the Remaking of a Codependent Mind. This is actually episode 12 of season three, and that got us thinking about 12-step programs and AA and CODA. Yeah, and it kind of feels like the right time to make another attempt at addressing the fact that we. one of the most common questions that we get from listeners is, uh, asking about some kind of resources or steps that I took to to get to where I am in this process. And we've kind of briefly answered it here and there in a couple of episodes, like a few episodes back that, you know, we addressed uh, resources a little bit. And season two really was an attempt to describe that process. But yeah. It was very involved. Yeah, there's a lot of episodes and there's a lot of information and right. it's very stretched out. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of like, okay, let's kind of sum this up a little bit and maybe close out this season with this with the idea of what were the steps Mm -hmm. can can we in fact kind of codify those steps in a more concise way one reason we have been reluctant to do that though is that you yourself didn't find those 12 steps really helpful in any way the original 12 steps the 12 steps coming out of aa and that that were then um, translated into Dakota language you didn't find those helpful right and and i kind of one of the reasons being I kind of didn't like the one size fits all mm-hmm. aspect of it. And and so that's why I've been reluctant to, you know, here, do these things and then you'll heal from from all this. But for one thing, I think important thing to say right out of the outset here is that I don't think codependency is something that you recover from. I, it's not like a disease or something, but I feel like that's kind of how coda and like aa and stuff kind of approach it like that's the model they use that it the kind of the disease model yeah it's kind of disease and and you need someone god or someone a people or whatever it is to remove these defects from you so that you're now this functioning person right this disease has been removed so we've chosen to to understand it and to talk about it as a collection of habitual behavior rather than a, a disease, right? And so there's, and and for that reason, then we're not removing anything. We're we're just rewiring. We're replacing these maladaptive behaviors with different behaviors. In your story, the recovery really is from the trauma that initiated the codependent behaviors, right? I and I think that's going to be the case for a lot of people. Either it's going to be trauma, or it's going to be something similar to that. Mm-hmm. That's what you're recovering from. You, mm-hmm. Whatever the effects are, there's there's something or or a series of things that happen that caused these behaviors to take root. But it's not the behaviors we're trying to heal from. Yeah, we're healing from and trying to discover what it was that caused those behaviors, and the, what caused them to be, as you said, maladaptive, which is a way of saying that they no longer served you. Exactly. That they're in fact were some ways doing the very opposite of what they were designed to do. So we talked about, say, caretaking and people-pleasing, being designed to really connect us with other people and help form intimate relationships. They had become maladaptive for you such that they were doing the opposite and and making it very difficult for you to to be in relationships. Right, so it's not real intimacy to begin with. I'm just doing this shot-in-the-dark caretaking and people-pleasing to everyone, and then certain people that kind of prey on on that behavior the this whole narcissist codependent mm-hmm. combo being like the most you know pre- the one that that was most prevalent for me then then i'm i'm just i'm getting stuck with these people right <laughs> and then and then keeping the 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 right people at arm's length kind of because i'm not really having intimate relationships with them so that that's that was one of your challenges with 
the CODA framework. Yeah. But in terms of like 12 steps programs in particular, what are a few of your issues with, with the 12 steps as they're, as they're written? One of the things that really rubbed me the wrong way when I was going to AA meetings was that a lot of these meetings started with this reading from the book. There's what's called the big book, which is the, which is the book that was written by these people back in the, when the program started. Yeah. It was just a small group of people, you know, it started obviously with one guy and and one doctor, but then they formed a very small group of people, kind of like the first AA meeting basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then they wrote this book around that. And there's this one quote that was read in almost every meeting that I was like, that seems really condescending and, and kind of counterproductive the way this is worded. I, so here's exactly how it's written. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. So it's like, all right, this is super simple. All you have to do is do these steps exactly like this, and you'll recover. Yeah, if you that, don't, you failed. That's pretty rough. <laughs> I mean, it's really, you can see kind of shame triggers in there. Yeah, right. <laughs> like you're shaming people if they if they fail. And in terms of kind of the research and scholarship, AA does not work for the majority of people that go to. It certainly works right. for some people, but for the vast majority, it does not. And I don't think it's because they're all constitutionally <laughs> capable of right. being honest with themselves. Right. Well, see, and I think... It, it, and and this is something I remember from the program too, for the people that it worked for, and I'll put air quotes on work, was that they didn't really understand why it worked. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's, it's fine that it did work for them. That's great that they kept going back to it. It kept working. They kept helping other people. As a whole, that's, that's great that it worked for some people. But I think it's important to know why. Why is it working? What exactly are you helping here? Right. So we have a whole swath of people that it doesn't work for, and yeah. then they're getting shamed for the fact yeah. that they failed. And then we have people who it does work for, but even if it works for them, kind of what you're saying, it doesn't mean that it's the 12 steps that were right. the magical formula. Yeah. It could certainly have just been that the support that they get from mm-hmm. regularly interacting with other people who are struggling. Yeah. It could have been you know, they formed a strong relationship with one or two people or their sponsor, and they yeah. were able to help work through other issues in their life. Um, yeah. One of the so, things I remember liking about it was that, you know, I, you know, for a while I was going like every day and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And so it's like, oh, yay. You know, like I kind of got excited about it. Like, oh, tonight I'm going to go and talk to people that have similar problems. As right. Me. Rather yeah. than sitting alone in your apartment, yeah. feeling sad, depressed, and wanting to drink because mm-hmm. you have nothing else to do. Sort right. Of so I think that's what worked for me. And I feel like it would be similar with CODA type program. You're going and you're around all these people that have similar issues and some compassion for each other for it. Right. And I'm not aware of any scholarship or research that's been done on the 12 steps themselves. So people have studied the efficacy of the AA program but I don't know if there's been any studying. If you follow these two people mm-hmm. who follow these twelve steps to the letter, I don't even know how you do that research versus people who don't. So really, it's kind of unknown what contribution of any of the twelve steps themselves have to the AA program. Yeah, well, and one of the things being that it's not addressing the root cause of these things, like we said. So it's like, okay, why are you an alcoholic? Are you interested in that, or are you just interested in stopping drinking? Like that's fine if that's all you care about but why do you think you were abusing alcohol or codependency where do you think the behaviors came from the steps seem to be even more challenging when you transpose them onto the yeah. code of fram- framework right exactly and those in particular you don't 
like let's read those steps right now just so that people have an idea in their head of what what these are which is and they're pretty much almost identical to the AAs. yeah basically yeah there's just a couple of words changed here and there but it's it's the same exact steps so one we admitted we were powerless over others that our lives had become unmanageable two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity three made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of god as we understand god four made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves five admitted to god to ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs six were entirely ready to have god remove all these defects of character seven humbly asked god to remove our shortcomings eight made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. And twelve, Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other codependents and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. So we'll put aside the the God piece, which a lot of people struggle with and, mm-hmm. and which you didn't connect with either. But I mean, I think there's ways to, to deal with there's that. There's ways around that, yeah. There's certainly some good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. You know, the impulse towards self-knowledge and self-awareness. Right, yeah. Taking an inventory, mm-hmm. making and amends with people. Admitting that there are issues and problems in your life that need to be dealt with. As you say, making amends, you know, trying to reconnect with, with people um, that, that have been harmed. But I, th- I think um, the first one, unfortunately, is very problematic, particularly for codependency. For codependency, right. So I think the way these were Which, worded... Why you read that one again? Because it's really... Yeah, right. So that one is, we admitted we were powerless over others, that our lives had become unmanageable. Here's the big problem is that, <laughs> first of all, I don't. the way these are worded with we is a problem for mm-hmm. me because that's, I've come to find powerless language. That's codependent language, right? Saying we. So try, yeah. trying to have this program where, it's, where I'm saying we, I'm giving up my power right there in just in, in the wording of these steps. And also your kind of accountability. Yeah. So there's that. But then also the fact that I get that with AA, it's like I'm powerless over alcohol, I, so I, I can't control myself when I'm mm-hmm. drinking, so I need to stop or whatever. But with codependency, at the core, it's powerlessness, right? So fine, admitting you're powerless, and then you're, and then what? The next step is to turn that power over? Yes. Well, you've already done that. Yeah, I mean, you did that repeatedly through your life. Yeah. Almost in every relationship, mm-hmm. you turned your power over to the to the other person. Yeah, yeah. It was a habitual thing. Like, I just assumed I had no power. Which is not to say that when that happened, you didn't try to f- find ways to assert some control over your environment mm-hmm. and yourself. And I think this is, you know, s- some people end up talking about codependence if they're, if they're controlling and they're mm-hmm. trying to control people. I, I think that's that's a little off the mark. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of, con- it's not like the narcissistic controlling where, you know, narcissists are trying to control people in order to extract resources from yeah. them. I think when you're talking about people with codependent p- behaviors, they're in a situation that is very childlike. Yeah. Um, where they don't, where they, as you say, they don't feel they have, everyone else feels more powerful. Mm-hmm. They don't feel they have power. And so they, they're controlling the way that children can kind of be, controlling right, right, they're, right they're trying to approach people who are more powerful than they are and, and get protected by them or have them be pleased with them so that they'll that 
they'll be safe. Right. Which is, is, is again different than I'm going to manipulate someone into, you know, supporting me financially or. Yeah. I mean, like you, you can make that argument that it's controlling somehow, but that's really just kind of semantics. Like it's not, it's who it's harming is the codependent person mostly. Because they're assuming they have no power. So anything that they get in terms of protection or self-esteem or love has to come from other people Mm -hmm. because they themselves are powerless. Yeah. And unfortunately for a codependent person that habitually people pleases everyone, that's going to be some abusive person often. So this first step, admit that I'm powerless, did nothing for you. No. Right. It had made no sense to you Mm -hmm. because you did not feel like a powerful person in the world that was... Right. So I needed really the opposite. And, you know, the question might be asked, okay, so we don't like the steps and we have a problem with this idea of everyone following the same steps and Mm -hmm. all working for them. Why are we doing this episode? (laughs) Yeah. But another thing it says in the big book, as it introduced the steps, it says, here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. But if you just look at that first part, here are the steps we took, that can be useful. I do think it can be useful to hear from others the steps they took in trying to change their behavior and change their lives. And so, like we said, we're distilling this into one episode, actually two, because this is going to take a little while to go through these. Mm -hmm. We did 12. And... um, we want to talk about you did one. 12. Yeah, well, you know, we, we worked on them together. <laughs> well, <laughs> I commented. On them. Okay, yeah. Yeah, well, and it was a great exercise writing these steps out for me, too. Because yes, we we did spend season two and really a lot of a lot of the whole podcast really talking about the things I did. But to try to distill them down into this list was really, I found it to be a great exercise. So instead of here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. So what we're doing here is we're rewriting it to here are the steps I took, which may offer some inspiration or suggestions as you design your own path to recovery. And that might be a good exercise for many people to design their own path of right. recovery by writing their own 12 step. And, and not necessarily like the, the point isn't like, oh, write these down and do these exactly right. like this in this order or something. So we're just hoping that these serve not as a program, mm-hmm. but as you said, as inspiration for other people's healing path. And so rather than list all the steps off. Well, we'll put them in the show notes. We'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. We'll just go through them one by one right now. But yeah, instead we'll go through them one by one and talk about them as we go through them. So let's go ahead and do it. Number one. Number one, I admitted that I was powerful, that my life could be manageable. So this is basically almost the same kind of step, but entirely reversed. Rather Mm -hmm. than I admitted I was powerless, I admitted I was powerful. Which may seem odd to many people, especially who don't struggle with codependency. Mm -hmm. But it was absolutely the case for you. And this took a while for us, for both of us. To realize what was going on. Mm-hmm. But through the early part of that, our relationship, there were plenty of examples of language that you used and behaviors that, that you took that in retrospect, as you know, I started to understand this, this dynamic and this phenomena, were examples of this lack of agency, that you did not see yourself as a powerful agent in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel it, mm-hmm. and I didn't believe it. So you had, for instance, difficulty 
explaining the relationships and the friendship that you ended up in because they actually weren't choices. (laughs) You didn't actually choose to be in them. So you often kind of couldn't explain what you were doing there. Right. It was always this kind of post hoc rationalization. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everything, like pretty much everything in my life was a post hoc rationalization. Yeah. So one example would be of the post hoc rationalization is when you talked about the beginning of your relationship with R. Initially, the story you told about that was that you were dating a few people, and that R was the one that seemed to like be most your type. She was kind of exciting and oh, confident, right. and you were drawn to those type of people, yeah, yeah. and uh-huh. she had tattoos and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but then later, as you went through this process and, and started to look honestly at the various relationships in your life, you realized that wasn't it at all. No. Yeah, wasn't. No, she she just grabbed my attention and my time in the most forceful way compared to the other people that I was associating yeah, with. Yeah, I mean, you had one conversation with her, you were in a relationship. It wasn't yeah. like you ever decided like, oh, I guess it's not like you were dating her and other people at the same time. Like the first right. date you went on with her, you were, you were essentially not allowed to see anyone else. Yeah, kind of. I mean, yeah, they, we it's... It was a work situation, so I did talk to her a few times before that mm-hmm. initiated. But once it initiated, yeah, that's the, the, like just super fast. Mm-hmm. Within a week, like we're in a relationship, full on. And yeah, I did. I was going out on a few dates with other people, which I thought were great people. And before you went on that date with her, before that, before that date with her, yeah, and then never spoke to any of them ever again. You right. Know, just so like, it's oh, not well, like this is the one here. Yeah. So this, you know, you told me the story. It was like, oh, yeah, I was dating many people. And you essentially chose that. She yeah, chose you. Right. And then, then that was it. Exactly. Right. And you also had difficulty taking accountability, too. I mean, mm-hmm. you had difficulty taking action without other people telling you that it was okay to act. Yeah. Right. Um, I didn't trust my own judgment, more or less. Absolutely. Kind of right. Like, and you didn't feel you almost seemed to have the right to do things. Yeah. So one concrete example of that would be like we've we've mentioned when we met you were still in the process of extracting yourself from the relationship with Jay. Mm-hmm. As anyone who knows who's tried to extract themselves from a narcissist, that is a very long drawn out process mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they are going to keep you around in whatever capacity they can for as long as they can to get whatever resources they think are still available for you. Right. Um, like, for instance, that's happened with R. Even when R supposedly ended the the marriage, she was still... She wanted the exact same relationship, but just without the pressure of being married. Yeah, well, in fact, you, you, you still continued mm-hmm. to live with her and support her financially for months and months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and emotionally and all that. And yeah, emotionally... Yeah, no, she was still abusing um, me. And, yeah. yeah, so I, I got to see a lot of the, the way that you were trying to handle that relationship. Mm-hmm. And there was one instance that you had actually finally officially been divorced, papers filed, everything over. You had given her the thousands and thousands of dollars in which she had extracted from you, but she was still insisting that you had to do this other stuff from her. Yeah. Like you had to you had to send her tax records. Of course, you did all the taxes and kept all the records. Right. So, but you're officially divorced. You know, she had been like, I had witnessed you now being abused for months. Mm-hmm. You had at that point, even acknowledged that she was a terrible person. And maybe we even started using the abuse language. Mm-hmm. But you still could not tell her no. Yeah, right. And in fact, you went to the paralegal that you had used to do the divorce and essentially kind of asked her if it was okay right. if you didn't <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. send these tax records to Jay. Yeah. Like you needed some powerful or authoritative figure mm-hmm. 
to give you permission. Yeah, even though it wasn't this woman's job at all. No, I mean, and in fact, that's kind of what she said. She's like, yeah, yeah, she's like I, I don't know, do, do whatever, whatever you want. want right? <laughs> <laughs> like, my, my, my part is done. Like, you're, yeah. you're divorced. Well, and, and also, yeah, so yeah, I would defer to others or e- either defer to others or at least feel as though I had to run everything by mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. Or I would enlist others too. So I enlisted you all the time help make me feel better about this situation like it was i am i doing the right thing here mm-hmm. you know like is mm-hmm. it okay that i ignore her texts or right. like, you know whatever right yeah and it, it a lot of this behavior seemed odd to me because here you are an adult male intelligent professionally successful attractive charming <laughs> sexy all of these things that i found you to be so it, it, it didn't it didn't occur to me that you would feel powerless Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't know what was going on. I mean, yeah. I remember when you had that interaction with the paralegal, I was like, why are you asking this person? If you don't want to give Jay the tax records, don't give her the ch- tax records. Right. Why do you need yeah. someone to tell you yeah. you're allowed or not allowed? Well, and that? of course, I didn't know this any of this either. No, yeah, you so, didn't know this any. Yeah. So admitting that you had power was very difficult was for you. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was not but, an easy step. Mm-hmm. So kind of like, I mean, if you go back to the original programs like AA and stuff, that's not an easy step for someone trying to quit drinking either to, to admit that you, I can't do this anymore or whatever. And so that's what I'm doing here though. I'm admitting that I do have power, that I can find that power and I can access that power. And I think, you know, part of the challenge with admitting that was shame. Yes. Right. So, I mean, you could get out of the shame of say being in the relationship with Jay and the way that she treated you. Mm-hmm. If you, were convinced that you had no other choice. But say when people would ask you, when you complain about her to people, and they would ask you, why are you with this person? That would cause shame. The, mm-hmm. the idea that you had a choice and that you were choosing to be there right. was, was too shameful. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of another word I used a lot in the earlier days was wish. I wish this. Oh, right. You yes, know? absolutely. That was like a if- lot of that. Like, I wish this could happen. Or I wish yeah. that could happen. Or I wish... She wouldn't do that, or I wish mm-hmm. I didn't have to do this. And it's like, well, right. you don't have to do this, right. or you don't have to accept that treatment. Yeah, that's true. I forgot about mm-hmm. that. So yeah, that's kind of a, a a good example of powerless language, also. Yeah, yeah. So it, w- it was easier for you to say, "Well, I wish this could happen," but then if you recognize that you had the power to make it happen, mm-hmm. you had to deal with the shame and the fear yeah. of trying to make it happen. Right. And that would happen so quickly in my mind that, yeah, I would rest at this I wish place and just kind of stay there. And, and you know, we just had this episode on anger and resentment. That's where the resentment comes in for people. Yes, exactly. Oh, I wish this person would treat me better. Well, mm-hmm. you have some power to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Boundaries or leaving. Boundaries or leaving. Yeah. Um, or, you know, yeah, I, I wish I had a better job. Well, yeah. you probably have some power to make that happen mm-hmm. rather than just staying in the situation and being here. resentful. Right, right. Yeah. So that was a big one. And, yeah. and that's still ongoing. Yeah, right. So number two. Number two is, I came to believe that human interpersonal relationships are a core feature of an enriching life experience, and that my habitual codependent behaviors were holding me back from having that experience. And I think you you mentioned that you always believed that relationships were important. Yeah, except that I downplayed that knowledge, you know, so much mm. because I isolated so much, and I right. felt like I deserved to be isolated, kind of, in a way. I had to take whatever was, came along, but we talked about that friendship that I had for, for years that I considered to be pretty good other than the kind of disordered 
that was being disordered. But that gave me a good example and a, a thing to pull from as far as like, yes, I do like intimacy in my life. Mm-hmm. I do like having this kind of communication and this kind of respect and and all of that. And you would talk about how you would think about that friendship when you were in the relationship with R and J and not yeah. understand why it couldn't be the same way. Mm-hmm. Especially near the beginning of R, because I started to, mm-hmm. it just really chiseled away and I was worse than ever eventually. And I think by the time I got to J, like I was already kind of obliterated. <laughs> right. But you did mention to me, so this is yeah. even post Yeah, it's still J. there. It's like, it's not like I you know, that, erased that, my entire history or anything. Yeah. Um, so you would wonder that. Why can't I have the kind of respectful communication that I had with my friend, with my romantic partners? But you would wonder in a way that would take yourself and your own behaviors out of the equation. Mm, right. Yeah. So, I mean, you wouldn't wonder that in a, like, what am I doing? Or, you, you know, or it, maybe these are the wrong relationships, right? Again, it was yeah. like just sent out into the universe. You were powerless. Like, mm-hmm. these are the relationships that you were given. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly how it And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, there's maybe some resentment to the universe or to mm-hmm. R&J that, that there was not as respectful or connected or intimate as your friendship but you didn't do that second part of the second step which is recognizing it was your own habitual codependent behaviors that were holding you back from the experience it wasn't the universe doing you in yeah so part of my habitual powerlessness and and then the resentment that follows was just keeping me stuck and then the codependent behaviors were what i did to keep propelling myself and and just keep myself stuck in these situations and I remember early on you mentioning how both R and J quit their jobs within essentially a couple months <laughs> or a few months of you getting together. And you brought it up again as if it's just like a terribly unlucky thing. Like, why, mm-hmm. why does this keep happening to me? And, and I asked that question back to you. I was kind of like, if it happened twice in a row, like maybe it has something to do with you. And you're like, yeah. And you, I mean, I think you kind of paused for maybe. Five seconds, or not even maybe a second, and and then you dismiss that, like, yeah. oh no, I I didn't. There's nothing luck. I did. It was just you know, it was just bad luck, or yeah. they're bad people, or something like that. Right. Right. Which of course, like, obviously, that's just bad luck. Yeah. Clearly, right. It was the codependent behaviors in both of, your own codependent behaviors in both yeah. of those the the enabling behaviors, the compliant behaviors, the trying to pacify them mm-hmm. by any means. Yeah, and uh, and there of course there is an element of bad luck in there, but that's mm-hmm. not. That's not what is important. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then I'm saying you deserved that because or, or, of the yeah. codependent behaviors, but your codependent behaviors were making a contribution to preventing you from having the relationships and, that you wanted. And, and like, those absolutely. behaviors were the thing that I could and should have had control over and, and some exactly. power over. Not them, those people. Right. But my reaction to those people. Yeah. So you were not going to be control and change them. No. You had to control and change yourself. Yeah. So number three. Number three is made a decision to listen to what my emotions are telling me and understand the ways in which I had been avoiding or burying those emotions. So this is also a thing that I carried along throughout this entire period, all the way back to the friendship with G, was Mm -hmm. muting my emotions, never learning what they were for, this whole good and bad emotion thing that we talked about in the Mm -hmm. last episode. Just, I don't like that. I need to avoid that. Like we've said before, though, these go back to those millennia, you know, that we've that we've developed these emotions to give us signals. And if we don't listen to those signals, then we're we're only half a person, kind of, mm-hmm. you know. We're not those predate our language and stuff. Right. So they're super important. And and it makes it's not a huge surprise that if we're not listening to them and we're avoiding them and burying them, that 
we would be just dysfunctional. But a lot of them are very powerful. We talked about that in terms of anger, yeah, but not just anger. I mean, obviously, shame is powerful, and the positive ones can be powerful as well. So a lot of them can be very scary, scary to feel, scary to sit with. So that was a, that was a really important part of this process for you. Yeah, right. I just had to really t- spend the time figuring out what exactly I was feeling to begin before mm-hmm. before I could even really do a lot of this stuff. So yeah, so number three was really you making the commitment to start really looking into your emotions. And part of that, number four. And then number four is, I made a searching and fearless inventory of all the relationships in my life, past and present, what effect those people's behaviors had on me and the effects that my behaviors had on those people. And this was actually, it was a kind of literally a step that you took. It is, absolutely. One of the early ones. And it was really when you started what we could call the journaling process. You went back all the way th- through your life, mm-hmm. relationship with, with G, the relationship with R and J, and really tried to take an inventory, not just of what they did to you. Yeah, which was important. I didn't really do that either. And, but also actions that you took that mm-hmm. both harmed yourself and harmed others. Yeah, and harmed others. And in the case of, you know, if it was with abusive person, how did those behaviors get me stuck and keep me stuck with those people? But also, yeah, how did these behaviors affect the other people in my life that were not in that abusive relationship themselves, but almost got abused through me. <laughs> uh, so if I'm remembering for a while, you had a kind of organized way of looking at periods in your life. You would take an episode or a period and you would apply. You yeah, would- or actually even a specific incident. It was easier for me to do it that way. Kind of like, I remember this one thing that happened. Now let me pick it apart. And you would apply these kind of three perspectives to it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the first one being, what did this other person do and how did it affect me? Was it abuse? Yeah. Was it not abuse? What was happening as far as what the other person was doing? And be honest about that. If I was a victim, that's fine to say that. And have compassion for yourself Mm -hmm. and for that victimhood. Yeah. And then the second piece, and by the way, all three of these pieces had to be done simultaneously, more or less. I mean, like, at first I actually wrote out three different pieces, mm-hmm. literally, on, when I was journaling about this stuff. But the second piece being, what were my behaviors in this situation? What did I do? Just be honest about it. I had to rewrite stories here. So because there was a lot of the stuff that I already buried and rewrote to avoid the shame of the situation. So I had to go back and place myself there and go, okay, I need to really remember what was I did here. Mm-hmm. So, right, first, so don't yeah. stay in victimhood. Move on and say, also, you were doing things. Yeah that were contributing to this situation, either contributing to your own victimhood or potentially harming others as well. Yeah. And then the third piece was basically empathy. So if there were someone like, say, you involved in a situation, try to put myself in your shoes and and think about how this may have made you feel right when this was happening. Yeah. So or, or, or you think about, say, me or these people say that you were complaining about Jay too. Mm-hmm. Like how did it feel for people who cared about you, friends and family, to hear about this kind of dysfunctional relationship repeatedly from you? Yeah. And then not take their advice. And or, then you would not take their advice right. and then you'd be dismissive of their concerns mm-hmm. and they would just have to w- be witnessing this over and over again. Yeah. I think those pieces are really good having all of those components in mind because early on when we would talk about your past, you would kind of flip-flop between either Complete victimhood, yeah, right? Yeah. Jay made me do it, or Art made me do it. You know, like, I don't have any, I'm not implicated in this. Mm-hmm. Or you would shame spiral. 
Yeah. It was just like, you were a terrible person. There was no escaping that fact. There was yeah. no justification or reason why you did what you did. It was just because you're, you're a terrible person. Mm-hmm. So you had to kind of find that, <laughs> that middle ground. Yeah. It's okay for it to be elements of both, obviously. You yeah. Know? It, and yeah, I was basically just kind of admitting either that I was completely powerless. Well, both are ba- basically saying I'm powerless. Yes, absolutely. Really, yep. you yeah. Know? And there's, there's nothing I can do. It. Either I was completely abused or I'm just terrible, awful. There's nothing I can do about it either. Right. Way, yeah, you know? exactly. So this was a, another pathway to feeling your own sense of personal power, which mm-hmm. was both recognizing the way that you were harmed and taking accountability for the way that other people were harmed by your behavior. And that's ongoing. <laughs> right. That's ongoing. That's always ongoing. And all this stuff gets easier, of course. Over, mm-hmm. It has gotten easier for me over time. You know, I, it doesn't, like I said at the beginning, I actually would write out three, the three pieces. But right. eventually I was just like kind of it became incorporated. It just became easier to, to just keep all those pieces in mind. Yeah. The way in which you were harmed, the way in which your own behaviors contributed to the situation, and then the way other, which other people were harmed. Yeah. So it was almost like I was forcing myself to incorporate all that, find that middle ground. And then now I'm, I just kind of move more from the middle ground habitually. And, and then the last one I think we have time for yeah. is, yep. is number five. Number five then uh, was I admitted to another human being that I value and trust the exact nature of those behaviors and relationships to the best of my ability. So it wasn't enough just for me to just journal this stuff because we've said this several times now. Mm-hmm. Other people are vital to any sort of healing, I think, and change and reprogramming. Um, I couldn't just do this on my own because I'm going to use my brain to solve a problem that's in my brain, you know, is it, that's a tall order. And like these aren't, these are kind of an order, but. Mm-hmm. Not exact, right? No. So it's not like you wait to step five in order to talk to other people. Like that yeah. should happen off the top. Yeah, that needs to happen right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But you you stayed in dialogue all the way through, say the journaling process. Yeah, as a as a way to check yourself that yeah. you weren't being honest, but and also to get support and further insight. All of those things that you're saying so important to have at least one other person. Could be a therapist. Mm-hmm. Could be someone you met in coda right. <laughs> could be a friend could be a family member someone that that just has the the enough compassion and empathy for you but also is doesn't go too easy really on you either is honest this person has to somehow be capable themselves mm-hmm. of intimacy in some way but yeah it could be a therapist it could be a professional person that's trained to do that absolutely but um otherwise you know people also just people in your life relationships i think it's important to take this step seriously mm-hmm. and to take responsibility for this step because neither of us are saying that, that it's easy to find a mm. person or people like that. Right. Even a therapist, it can be hard to find a good therapist. But it, it is really important part, I think, of this process that you put yourself in dialogue with a trustworthy person. Yeah. I think if you, if you feel as though you haven't found that, keep trying. Exactly. You know? I mean, exactly. when I think back to those earlier days, for one thing, it got me on the road to real intimacy, right? So we've said this before, but in the earlier days, you started all our conversations about intimacy. And this gave me an in to make me get a little more comfortable and build a little momentum and confidence that I could start a conversation, an intimate conversation. And then there was a lot of times when I, so I'd say I'd journal about something and I'd bring it to you at the end of the day and you had a different opinion. You're like, actually, that's not the way I see it. And then we have a conversation about it. And then I could go back the next day and, and rework, rethink it. Mm-hmm. You know, if it were just me writing this thing out and that's it, I've written the story now, you know, 
but bring in another person now now you're at least twice as likely to get to the real truth i think so i think that's the last one we have time for today mm-hmm. <laughs> we will put all of them in this week's show notes then we'll go through steps six through 12 in the next episode as always we love to hear from you you can find us on instagram or facebook codependent mind or send us an email at codependentmind at gmail.com and we'll hope that you'll join us in a couple weeks